I want to start by reiterating our vision, uh, so they'll throw it up on the slide for you. But what we want to do each week is in the beginning of the sermon, because it's not always part of the sermon, is we want to help you understand the vision at a more tangible level. So if you, if you look upon the screen, uh, Jessica has outlined this for us. And if you look at our vision statement that's on our bulletin, if we simplify it, we basically, the core essence is that we want to reproduce, right? Because that's the Great Commission, to reproduce disciples. And so we want to be a, a, a church, a vibrant church, of disciple makers that reproduces vibrant churches. But when you think of churches, you think of buildings, you think of church plants, and that's part of the movement of the church, but really the church is a group of people. The church is a group of people that Jesus has called out to live for him and to be his people in a world of darkness. We are to be his light, we are to be his body. And so when you bring that down to the individual level, we want to be a vibrant church of disciple makers that reproduces everyday missionaries. Disciple makers, when you send disciple makers out into the world, you have individuals living for Jesus, called by Jesus to be an everyday missionary. But that begins with loving God passionately, right? Loving passionately, we want to love passionately, love God and people. We want to live authentically, especially in this world, in the climate of our culture, and that's genuine discipleship. We want to give generously of our time, talents, and treasure, and then we want to go courageously, right, wherever God has called you, as an everyday missionary. I think today's sermon, now as we transition in, meets us where we're at. Because I, th I think when we look at this vision, a lot of times we're like, God, you're calling me to do something, but what about my struggles? What about my challenges? I know many of you are sitting here and marriage is difficult. You know, you love Jesus, you want to follow him, but it's hard. For some of you, parenting is difficult, especially if you have teenagers. You're trying to follow Jesus you're trying to lead your teenagers to love Jesus, and it's hard. Some of you are, are journeying through that struggle of singleness and loneliness, and you're wondering what God has. Before you, Some of you are struggling through work transition, figuring out what's next for you. Some of you are, are, are celebrating, and, and you're fine, and you're healthy, and that's great. But I think for all of us, we remember that we're on a journey. That if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, then our Lord leads us, our shepherd leads us, and for each and every one of us, he's calling us to take our next step. And that next step for some of you may be a reconciliation of your marriage. It may be the first step. It may be crying out to, to Jesus more and, and seeing how to have a conversation with your kids. It could be finding contentment in him. So wherever we are, because there's so many life stages in here, so many stages of faith, what is Jesus calling us to do? And, and today's sermon is entitled, Christ, Our True and Better Passover Lamb, because it is a message about the Lord's Supper. That's, that's this passage today in Mark, as we're going through Mark, is where Jesus establishes an, uh, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which we're actually going to take next week, because we take that on the last Sunday of each month. But this is a starting point for us. As we are going through the wilderness of life, the, the Lord's Supper is a reminder for us, whether we're in an oasis or whether we're in a desert of spiritual dryness, that as we wander, we're not wandering alone. There's a constant reminder of what we've been saved from, who saved us, and where we're headed. And that's what I want to do today. So take God's word toward me to Mark 14. Mark 14, and the title of today's message once again is Christ, our true and better Passover lamb. We want to go back once again to see how the Passover is connected to the Lord's Supper and how we are really part of God's journey, God's story. That leads us to point number one. 
before we get into the text, I want to give you point number one. Point number one this morning is that we are connected to a greater story. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, every time we partake in the unleavened bread and the wine or the grape juice, we are reminded, point number one, that we are connected to a greater story. There are four points today. I'll give you each of them as we go along. That we are connected to the greatest story. And when I say greatest story, I'm referring to salvation history. And today we're going to see that as Christians, we are tied back to the Passover. And so with that, look with me now, Mark chapter 14, and I want you to look at verses 12 to 16, this first section. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And so what we see here, the first thing we see is that Jesus and his disciples are going to celebrate the Passover. Little did the disciples know that this will be the last Passover. This will actually be the final legit Passover because Jesus in this same supper is going to ordain the Lord's Supper. Jesus is going to fulfill the meaning of Passover. He is going to be the true and better Passover lamb. And so the disciples are part of this. But every time as we as Christians take the Passover, we must be reminded that we are traced back and we are connected into this wonderful salvation history, which is the greatest story. It's a story of salvation. What is the Passover? If you're new to the Bible, the Passover is recorded in Exodus chapters 11 to 12, where we read that God's people were in a foreign land, Egypt. And they were enslaved into a sentence of death. They were condemned into lifelong slavery until they died. And if they did not follow or surrender to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, they would be killed. But God did not forget his people. He sent a series of plagues. And the last plague being the most serious, the last plague would be God sending his judgment through the land of Egypt. And that night, every family would lose their firstborn child. The firstborn child would die. But God sent provision, a substitutionary sacrifice for Israel. He said every Israelite family that would actually believe in the word of God and would take a lamb without blemish, that's a lamb without, a lamb without defect, slaughter that lamb, they're going to eat that lamb for dinner, but, but take the blood of the lamb and paint it over your doorpost. And symbolically, if you were to take shelter under the blood of the Passover lamb, you would be passed over, hence Passover. And God's judgment would pass over your home and your firstborn would live. So not only were their firstborn saved that night from the judgment of God, but this cause, this final plague and judgment caused Pharaoh to say, okay, Moses, take the Israelites, take your people, take God's people and go. And, and this exit from Egypt goes down in history as the Exodus. 
What we see in today's passage is that Jesus introduces a true himself as a true and better Passover lamb. And he's going to give them a true and better deliverance. And he's going to introduce a true and better new exodus. There's a different salvation that comes, right? But going into the text, Jesus makes preparations for Passover ahead of time. Notice back in our text, verses 13 and 16, that Jesus sends two of his disciples into the city. Who are these disciples? Luke chapter 22, verse 8, identifies these two disciples as Peter and John. And we assume that Jesus made sovereign arrangements to use this upper room. Now, how he made these arrangements, the scriptures do not tell us. Whether he sovereignly, supernaturally just spoke through the Spirit to these people so that they knew, okay, we got to prepare this. Or, more likely was that Jesus made arrangements with a follower of him, one of his followers, who happened to own a, a building or a house with an upper room. Uh, and they would have, they would meet this man, right? So Peter and John were to look for a man carrying a jar of water. That is cryptic, but that, that's also a symbol that would make this man stand out. Why? Carrying a jar of water in the original languages, that's a pitcher of water. Uh, that you would serve for drinking. And back in these days, that was a domestic servant. And usually the person who would be carrying a, a, a jar of water that's light enough doing, would be a female servant. This was most likely a male servant. And, and so they, they were given different tasks, harder, heavier tasks. Okay? And, and so for a man to be carrying a pitcher of water, he would stand out. And the disciples would recognize him right away. And so this, this is a cryptic signal. And this man would lead them into a place where Jesus has pre or prearranged for the, for an upper room to be prepared. The food would be prepared. Uh, everything would be laid out. The table would be there. The furniture would be there. And they would celebrate the Jewish Passover. Now the question is, why is Jesus so cryptic about the location? And why does Jesus need to have an undercover servant with a water of pitcher? And how does this apply to our context today? And I think the reason why Jesus is so secretive is to prevent Judas from finding out this location. You see, Judas was filled with so much greed. But when you look at Judas, he simply had the sin of the flesh. He had the sin that enslaves all of us. But he was so greedy for money, he, he realized that Jesus was not the Messiah that he wanted. He was hoping for a Messiah that would establish a, a crazy earthly kingdom where he would immediately have power and wealth and authority and everything that he wanted in this world. When he realized that Jesus was going to die and that Jesus' mission was different, he, he was going to betray Jesus as soon as possible. And so if he found out the location ahead of time, he would have alerted the authorities, and that night Jesus would have been arrested earlier. But Jesus didn't want that. Jesus said, I have to have this final Passover with my disciples because I want to teach them an important lesson. I want to set up the Lord's Supper, but I, I need to show them the true and better Passover. So, so that's why we, we believe that Jesus was so cryptic and he only sent two of his disciples into the city. It was to prevent Judas from finding out the exact location ahead of time. And obviously Judas would learn of the location, but by the time he learned of it, it would have been too late for him to alert the authorities ahead of time. But clearly there's a deep connection between the Lord's Supper and the Passover. And this leads us to point number two. Point number two is not only, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded not only that we are connected to the greatest story, 
the salvation story, which traces back to Israel's history and the Passover and the Exodus. But the Lord's Supper reminds us that we've been delivered from the greatest slavery. The greatest slavery, right? Both Judas and the Exodus generation, and today I want you to see ourselves suffer from a greater slavery. Now, for the original Israelites who took the Passover lamb, right, they were enslaved under physical bondage, but it was also spiritual because their souls were enslaved. They, they, they had to, in a sense, worship outwardly Pharaoh. Whatever the Egyptian king ordered, they had to obey. Otherwise, their families would die. They were physically enslaved in a foreign land until they died. They could never see the end. And so for salvation, typical salvation for them was, God, you got to deliver us from this slavery. And, and so their idea of Old Testament salvation was to be in the promised land, the land of freedom that God promised to them, where they could freely worship their God, where God could dwell with them, and where there were no one no longer enslaved. And it was, it was to be delivered into the promised land where they could set up God's kingdom. That was their idea of salvation. But a lot, a lot of it had to do with this physical slavery. So the Passover lamb delivered them temporarily. But guess what? You know already that the Passover lamb did not save them from the greater slavery of sin because they went back to the golden calf. They went back to idolatry. Their hearts were so tempted back into the world. In fact, at times they cried out against Moses saying, take us back to Egypt where we're comfortable. We'd rather go back into slavery. And so you see that the Passover lamb, as powerful as a symbol as it was, was not able to deliver them from slavish hearts. You could deliver the slave physically out of slavery, but you, but you need a more powerful sacrifice, a more powerful death, a more powerful salvation to deliver the, the slavish heart. And so you see that the human race is enslaved to this idolatry of sin and death. Right? And that's crazy because Jesus is going to come and he's going to deliver us from the greatest slavery, the slavery to sin and death. And you see, even as Christians, we can see the parallel a little bit. Yes, we understand that we've been given this great salvation. But you know, I mentioned in our introduction that our lives are challenging and hard. And there's so much in this life that's so busy and it, it seems like it's endless that it's so tempting for our hearts to long for instant gratification. And so our temptation is just to be like the world or to find satisfaction in the comforts of this world. That's just where the Israelites were, were at, right? See, the difference is that you and I, we have a different power. And, and so let me show you a parallel between Judas and the Exodus generation. Hopefully you can see the slide. But you see Judas, he experienced the Son of God directly, relationally. The Son of God was in the presence of Judas. Judas Judas walked with God, if you will. The Israelites, they experienced the presence of God dwelling with them. They experienced the, the miracle of God. They experienced the tabernacle of God. And you, you see Judas. Judas witnessed Jesus' divine miracles. But the Israelites... That, that Exodus generation, they experienced this parting of the Red Sea and God providing food for them and God delivering them and God guiding them through a divine light. Judas, he sat under the immediate divine teaching of Christ. The Israelites, they received divine teaching through Moses. Judas, 
He rejected Christ for idols and money. Even though he had all of this, he had the presence of God among him. He saw the miracles of God, but yet he chose money. 30 pieces of silver. He chose money because he realized Jesus is not going to give me the world. And you see the Exodus generation, they rejected God because they wanted comfort. They said, we'd rather be slaves in Egypt than wander in this wilderness and not know where we're headed. They lacked faith and they gave in to the golden calf. They gave in to idolatry. You see the heart is idolatry. But then, beloved, isn't that what you and I struggle with? We struggle with this. And so that's why the Lord's Supper is such a powerful reminder that we've been delivered from slavery, from a deeper slavery than any slavery this world can physically enslave people unto. It is a slavery of sin and death. I just want to give you some perspective as to Judas's heart. I'm not going to get into Judas as much today because we're going to start a little mini-series next week entitled uh, The Characters Surrounding the Crucifixion. And, you know, we'll go into Peter and Pilate and a little more into Judas. And we're going to go into Judas's heart a little bit because I feel like that might shepherd us a little better. But but if, if you just look at this, Judas was trapped under this slavery of idolatry that when you consider 30 pieces of silver, that's one month's pay. And some say today this is anywhere from $150 to $200. And I know that's a lot of money for back then, but still consider this. 150 to 200 dollars. Others say it's about 600 dollars today. Okay, so you're talking about hundreds of dollars to sell your soul to Satan, just because Jesus is not going to give you the world that you want. And, and this is just a cross reference. Last week we talked about the sacrifice of Mary, and if you do the math, it, it was whatever denarii it was. It, it came out to anywhere from people say it could be 50 to 60 thousand dollars that fragrance, that pure nard that she sacrificed. So, so you could do that contrast. You, you have this, this, this lady, Mary, her heart just loves Jesus. And she says, Jesus, I'm going to take the most valuable thing I have and fifty to $60,000 worth of you know, U.S. dollars today, and, and I'm just going to break this upon Jesus and anoint him. And, and you see compared to hundreds of dollars, 150 maybe, right, for Judas. And you look at the enslavement of his heart, and you know that that $150 is not going to give him joy. So you see the total depravity that Judas was under. It was the same depravity that ex the Exodus generation was under. So when people say, if God shows up and perform, performs miracles in, in front of my face, I'll believe him, that's not true. The slavery of sin is so deep that even if the miracles happen in front of us, we wouldn't understand it because it takes a miracle for us to see. And that greatest miracle is when the blinders come off your eyes and you're like, man, that ugly Savior that hangs on that offensive cross that tells me the exclusivity of, a, of Jesus is the only way. For some reason, this, this ugly Savior hanging on this offensive instrument of torture is so beautiful to me. And the world looks at you as foolish. Why do you put all of your value and all of your work and all of your identity in this crucified Savior represented in, in the Lord's Supper, even the Lord's Supper? Right to, to take his body and to drink his blood, so we're cannibalistic vampires. But, but there's a church history of us. That's how the world would see it. But yet we see this as truth and beautiful and saving because there's a, there's a spiritual slavery that Jesus rescued us from. Right, And so that's the difference. And so we have to understand that when Jesus saves us, he's not only 
connected us to the greatest story, which is salvation history. But Jesus has, has delivered us from, Jesus has delivered us from, from the greatest form of slavery. Now I want you to look again at verse 17, where Jesus identifies Judas as his betrayer. Let's get back into the storyline of the text. Look at verse 17. It says, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now think about this for a second. Stop right there. You might not like some of your coworkers because maybe they talk behind your back. They stab you in the back. There's workplace politics. That's for real. Okay, and you're like, I'll work with this person, but I'm not going to lunch with them. But so, so I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. As Christians, we want to be missional. We want to pray for people. But imagine having a, an intimate meal, which back in these days, in the first century, having a meal with someone was, was an intimate act, something that you would do with your dear friends. And Jesus, knowing this betrayer is among him, and Jesus sharing a meal with him, this is like going to lunch with someone you know that's going to stab you in the back. That's going to hurt you and has nothing but evil intentions and satanic motivation to harm you. Right? Because, because we know in other places in the Bible it says, it says that Satan entered Judas. And, and so this is crazy. And so G, Jesus is going to have a meal with him. And, and, and notice he says, truly I say to you, one of you, verse 18, will betray me, the one who's eating with me. Did you ever think about that? And, and you see that Jesus, he's allowing this. I'll talk about this more next week. Of, of Judas had a chance, I believe, to repent. But at the same time, God is sovereign. How do we reconcile that? We've got to talk about that next week. But you look at Psalm. I want you to take a look at this Psalm. King David writing on betrayal, expressing in, in his words in his days the pain of betrayal. Right, The son of David, Jesus, the greater son of David, brings this to full fulfillment. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So, so you kind of see all kinds of parallelism here, where God fed the Exodus generation the bread of life but they kept turning against God. You see David using this kind of symbolic expression. And here Jesus literally, I'm dipping bread in the same plate with this guy, and I, and I want to give him the bread of life as well, and I've taught him everything. And here's, he, I see him as a dear friend, and he's lifted his heel against me in betrayal. And so that's crazy because Jesus is showing us something deeper. Right? He's showing us the pain that he's going to take for us. He's, he experiences betrayal from a, a dear friend in his eyes, right? He loved Judas. He, he's going to experience denial from his leaders, from his apostles, from his dear friends. He's going to be abandoned temporarily by his father. And he's going to suffer. It, it, when you talk about loneliness, I mean, you're talking about Christ completely going to be abandoned on the cross, but that's what he endures for us. That is a deeper slavery, to be completely alone and to be completely abandoned. That's what we would have been, abandoned, our souls abandoned in hell. But Jesus is going to go and deliver us from this. So notice back in our passage that 
Notice verse 21 that Jesus condemns Judas. He says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, which means the betrayal of Jesus, the death of Jesus, this is all part of his plan. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born, meaning it's better if he never existed because if you exist, you're going to face judgment. right? You're going to have to come before God. If you're a human being, you're going to have to come before God and you're going to have to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he your Lord and Savior? Or did you never surrender to him as Lord? You're going to reckon, are you just going to say to him, I kind of knew about him, but I didn't believe him. Or are you going to say, he is my Savior. And I had nothing to offer, but he saved me. So it's better if Judas was never born, is what Jesus is saying. And that is crazy. This is a condemnation saying hell is so bad that it would have been better if he never existed to begin with. But beloved, I want you to consider that you and I, even though we're not Judas, and even though we are not the Exodus generation, and even if we haven't actually physically betrayed Christ, that we're going to face the same condemnation if it were not for Christ dying for us and rising for the dead. Because of this great slavery. Again, think about it. If Jesus performed all these miracles in front of Judas, and he still chose 150 bucks. Man, how helpless are we? Apart from our Savior, our Good Shepherd, coming in and pulling us into the pit. But we're in that pit saying, Jesus, I love this mess. And he comes in there and says, you can't see that nothing in this world is going to satisfy your soul. It's just going to enslave it further. And so he is the good shepherd that comes in and individually he calls us. He calls us. But how he delivered us is through his sacrifice. And therefore, point number three, right? So, so once again, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that we are connected to the greatest story. We've been delivered from the greatest slavery, sin and death, death, the idolatry of the heart, the enslavement of the heart, and we've been delivered through the greatest sacrifice, a true and better final sacrifice. Notice verse 22, where Jesus now points directly to this. Mark chapter chapter 14, our text today, or, or uh, yeah, chapter 14, verse 22. It says, they were eating and he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. Right? It's... Not a bone in his body was broken. That was to fulfill prophecy that when he hung on the cross, they actually didn't break his bones because the the lamb had to be without blemish. So when he breaks it, when we say the body that was broken for you, is just distributing Christ to every believer. Right? It's just the body was broken so it can be distributed to everyone. So, so don't take that the wrong way when he said his body was broken for you. Not a bone was broken. He was the perfect Passover lamb. Symbolically fulfills that. He says, take, this is my body. When he says this is his body, this unleavened bread is what they use. It symbolizes a separation from worldliness, which enslaves us. You see, when they were in Egypt, Israel was to be set apart from the pagan ways of Egypt, but they were enslaved. And even when they were free and they went into Canaan and the second generation went into Canaan, when I say Canaan, I'm not talking about the Chinese restaurant, okay? But when the land of Canaan in the Middle East and Palestine, they were still enslaved. They still fell to idolatry. You see, it's this whole 
The whole leaven, leaven, negative lemon, carries this symbolism of sin and impurity. So unleavened bread just symbolizes purity. And that's why we take the flat bread. Okay, this unleavened bread, it symbolizes bread that is to remain pure. And then in verse 23, it says, He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, and that Greek word is, 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 is Eucharist, right? Eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. And that's why in some traditions, the communion, the Lord's Supper is referred to as taking the Eucharist. He gave thanks and he gave it to them and they all drank of, of it. Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks. And so this cup of wine represents his blood. And that's the blood of the new covenant. And the blood of the covenant and verse 24, he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. It represents his blood that was shed for us. It's not real blood. It's just symbolic. And that blood brings what? Eternal forgiveness. Right? That's what the blood symbolizes. Is that in Israel's history, every time an animal's blood was shed, it, it represented temporary forgiveness. But the true and better, perfect, sinless Passover lamb would bring about complete, eternal forgiveness of sin. And poured out for many that just tells us the salvation of the church. Salvation of many who would come to believe in Jesus Christ. It's very specific that this death is definite. That there is a set amount of people that Jesus is, is going to guarantee their salvation. And that's everyone who ever comes to saving faith. They're going to have take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. You see that there's a difference. Israel took shelter under the Passover of the Lamb, but it did not guarantee their salvation, let alone their entrance into the promised land because the Exodus generation wandered and wandered and God didn't let them in because they, they, they failed to trust God. But for us, Jesus takes us into the promised land, a true and better promised land. That leads us to point number four. Point number four, so let's review. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that we're connected to the greatest story, that we're delivered from the greatest slavery, that we're delivered through the greatest sacrifice, but we are headed not towards the land of Canaan, but we are headed towards the greatest salvation. And when I talk about salvation, you know I'm talking about final salvation. The day when you see Jesus in heaven, and it's fully confirmed, you're saved, you're forgiven, because you're right there in a different land, a land where you're, you're experiencing God's immediate presence, in the presence of Jesus Christ, there you are. That's the land that we're all headed towards. And we're in this world constantly being tempted to worship the world. And the journey is difficult, but every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder, it's a reminder. Remember what you've been saved from. There's a greater slavery you've been saved from. Remember the power of that sacrifice. It's going to deliver you all the way through. It's guaranteed. But you need to persevere in your discipleship and remember the true land that you're, the land of rest. You begin to think of what Israel really wanted. They wanted rest from slavery. They wanted rest, a land where they could rest and worship their God freely. And you and I, when you're struggling with life, you want spiritual, emotional rest. And every time you take the Lord's Supper, you're reminded that that rest comes in your relationship with Jesus Christ personally. And even if Jesus doesn't take away the immediate pain or the struggle, Every time you take the Lord's Supper, it's by faith. That I'm, I am by faith taking the Lord's Supper with all of God's people in faith that one day God's going to give me the rest that this world cannot give me. 
that I'm going to be in his presence and there's going to be no more pain and no more tears, but I have to hold on. I have to believe. I have to remain under shelter of that blood of the lamb. Right? I must stay with the lamb. And, and so we are headed towards the greatest salvation. And it is to be with God where that forgiveness reaches full realization. Where do we see this in today's passage? Look at verse 25. Verse 25 of, of Mark 14. Verse 25. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What do you mean drink it new? We drink this this Lord's Supper all the time. What do, you, what do you mean drink it new? What is he talking about? This is something different. The fruit of the vine was a common Jewish reference to wine, real wine. And Jesus is talking about the fulfillment of what that wine symbolizes. Meaning, if the wine is to symbolize his blood, then his blood represents the new covenant. And that wine symbolizes forgiveness. And so you and I, Every single time we say we're forgiven, we're forgiven, and we take that Lord's Supper, we're forgiven, it's still by faith. Now, we must believe in the assurance of our salvation, but you will know that that is fully realized when you're actually in the presence of God and you know you're forgiven because you made it to the kingdom. It's not the land of Canaan, right? Again, the Israelites were headed towards the land of Canaan. When you make it into the kingdom of heaven because of Christ, because you remain under the blood of the lamb, right? That that day, that's what Jesus is saying. I would not drink again of the fruit of the vine. What's the fruit? It's the fruit of Jesus' death is the church. Every single person that's ever believed in the promises of Jesus Christ till the end in the Old Testament. And every New Testament saint, when, saint, when we're gathered there with Jesus in his eternal kingdom, Jesus is going to drink the fruit of that vine, the fruit of his sacrifice, the blood covering all of the elect. When we sit there and we all sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain for our sins. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We all took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Even the Old Testament saints who repented. I, I want you to consider Moses leading people. Moses was probably the, one of the greatest shepherds, right? Uh, greatest pastors. Old Testament, but a pastor of his people. I know he sinned. I, I know he was not perfect. But he loved God. He had a personal relationship with God. He actually saw the promised land in his earlier years. He had a vision. He knew where he needed to take his people. He, his vision was from God. He, he knew where they had to go. But when he realized he wasn't going in, and when he realized his generation wasn't going in, he submitted to God's will. Right? He didn't get angry. He says, I will shepherd these people and I will remind them that even though you're not going to see the promised land, Joshua is going to lead the next generation in. I know where they're going. And we believe that, that he shepherded his generation and said, we're going to bury you. We're going to shepherd you down to the final days where you're going to look forward to a true and better promised land. You need to believe in the promise that your children are going to make it into the land. You need to believe in the God of the promise and keep trusting in God and keep making the sacrifices, keep living according to the law, and keep following God. And his people in there, they, they didn't know it was going to be Jesus Christ. But oh boy, oh boy, I, you know, 
Moses died, and anybody in the Exodus generation that actually followed Moses to the end and kept trusting in God and kept repenting of their sins, they probably went into a greater land of rest, the land of rest where they are waiting for us, saying, hey, church, you have something much greater than us. We had Moses as our mediator. You have Christ, the Passover lamb, who's also the lion, who's the king, who is also your shepherd, the true and better Moses, the final Passover. Persevere, beloved. Don't go for the golden calf like we did. Many of our generation died, unbelieving. But they would be preaching to us, saying, you have Christ. Look to him. He'll get you through anything this world is going to throw at you. Look to him. Look to your shepherd. Behold your great shepherd. Derek, myself, and Jonathan Ng, uh, the young uh, John Ng, the older, were, were chilling. I, I think it was 2009 or 2010. And we were in Chicago. And we were at a Gospel Coalition conference. And Tim Keller was preaching. And so this is kind of weird because I'm quoting Tim Keller who quotes someone else. And Tim Keller was, was, was recalling a verbal story of, of Alec Montier. And Alec Montier is a, is a biblical scholar. And the topic of this talk was preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And so we're sitting there, and I just remember Keller saying this, and I pulled it up and put it on quotes for you. And, and Keller said, quoting Alec Montier, said <laughs> that if you were to ask an Israelite after crossing the Red Sea, who are you? They would answer this way, quote, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and our mediator led us out, and we crossed over, and we're on our way now to the promised land, though we're not there yet. But he's given us his law to make us a community. He's given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness, and he's present in our midst, and he will stay with us until we arrive home. And, and, and Ma'ir or Keller, one of them, whoever's relaying it, Ma'ir probably said, this is similar to what a Christian would say. That was fascinating for me. It just put the whole Bible together. It's just it's complete just illumination of the meaning of the Lord's Supper and its connection to Passover. But, but, but here's where I would say it's a little different. Because once again, the Passover lamb for them did not deliver them fully. Right? It delivered them from physical slavery, but they were still enslaved. And I would say it this way, that we were in a foreign land. This world's not our home. We were enslaved to our sinful flesh. This greatest slavery condemned to eternal death. But by faith in God's word, we took shelter under the blood of Christ, our true and better sacrificial lamb. Christ led us out of bondage. We crossed over from darkness into light. Now we're on our way to a true and better promised land of God's eternal kingdom. But beloved, we have trials. We have sin that so easily entangles us. We're not there yet, but he's given us his word to guide us. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He tabernacles within us. And he will be with us until we arrive home in heaven. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we must remember this. That 
the Lord's Supper, the reason why we have to take it monthly is it reminds us of the journey. That when we talk about the Christian life, the destination is the journey. Christ-likeness, Christ with us all the way, Christ forming us. It's the big idea of today's passage and message is Christ is our true and better Passover lamb who delivered us from the greatest slavery through the greatest sacrifice for the greatest salvation. And so next week we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And I know that it's so easy for the Lord's Supper communion to become ritualistic and routine. But in the midst of life's journey, the Lord's Supper is a constant reminder that meets us as we wander through our unique wilderness, whatever it is individually, that the Lord is with us and we will enter his kingdom one day. But we cannot move away from him. We need to continue to take shelter under his blood and in Christ. And if someone were to ask us, who are you? We would be able to say these things, that we've we've been delivered. We are connected to the greatest story. We've been delivered from the greatest slavery. That's who we are in Christ. That we've been delivered by the greatest sacrifice, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, the gospel. But we are headed towards the greatest salvation. That's the journey. So, beloved, let's continue the journey together. No matter what wilderness you find yourself in, know that the pastors, we love you more than you know, but we're just trying to point you to Christ who loves us all more than we will ever know. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word today, Lord, and we look back to the cross. We look to the Lord's Supper and its meaning. We see how you connect us back into salvation history. But you've given us something much greater than the Passover lamb. You've given us the true and better sacrifice in your son. Help us, Lord, now to live for him. Lord, I know, we know that there's people suffering sitting in here. We pray, Lord, that you would meet them and you would lift them up and give them rest in the power of your spirit. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to send the rest of us out as everyday missionaries. And if anyone in here does not know you, if they do not have you as their Savior and Shepherd, Lord, we pray that you would save them now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.